Ooh, just checking out my girlfriend's figure. Amazing figure. No, 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 no. You pervs. I'm talking about graphs on velocity. What are you, what are you working on, Ellen? Actually, fluidization velocity. Fluidization velocity. And you had to, and and you just have this great figure. Yeah. That you're just showing me. Fantastic. It's delta P versus superficial velocity. There, delta P. Well, you heard it, folks. Anyway. <laughs> Get your minds out of the gutter, all right? <laughs> really, I'm looking at her amazing figure, uh, figures. <clears throat> okay, now, <laughs> just coming off, let me turn this down a little bit. Actually, really just coming off of, wow, I had a, I had a crazy trip um, where I ended up going to Chicago, uh, mainly actually to Indiana uh, for some work. And, I mean, it just took my whole week, uh, oh, <laughs> I felt when I finally got back, I got back Thursday. I was, I, I left last weekend. It was kind of like an emergency trip or not an emergency, but it, it came out of nowhere. And, um, I got back Thursday and it just drained, just drained, drained, drained. Here's a funny thing about me. I, I know you're like, wow, well, I mean, this guy gets behind the microphone, just lets it ride, goes to conferences and talks it up and all that. Look like <laughs> it takes so much out of me. Okay. To really appear in public. <laughs> I, I am, a, I'm a natural introvert. And so I have to recharge my batteries. And I was spending these past few days, I was spending, you know, like, like 10 hours in an entire room. I mean, in, in other areas, but an entire room, a meeting room with people, a conference room with people. And, and you're just talking to them, presenting to them, blah, blah, blah. And, and, oh man, I mean, I was just so, so drained. I'm still recharging, but you know, the golden salient is going to be here for you. Okay. To get you your hookup, to get you, well, we got your, your weekly Q and a here. Uh, we've got two episodes of sovereign tech that are going to come out over the next couple of days, uh, just to play a little game of catch up and, uh, you know, and then we'll, we'll get in some other things, but man, was I drained, but you know, it's worth it because and I'm not gonna, not gonna go into details, but when you're working with companies that, you know, really are, are doing great things for the planet, which you know, I got somebody made a comment. It's like, wow, you're talking about saving the world. Are, are you still an egoist? Uh, yes. No, of course I am. But I'm also, you know, I, I love the fact, if I think of it, I'll link to it in the show notes. There's the great, and it would actually make a great overall subject for Sovereign Tech at some point. Um, and you can read the comment that was made on on the Podbean app or at the sound on maybe it was last week's Q&A or, or maybe it was during the taste of Q&A. I don't recall. But anyway, uh there's, there's a great video by Kurzgesagt that came out a while back called altruistic egoism. Now I've shared this many times before, so it's not really anything new for me, but the, I, I mean, the basic gist of altruistic egoism is, is that, okay, you know, yeah, the individual is what matters, but it's in the individual's best interests to, you know, basically be kind to other people and so on. Right. And, and it is, you know, uh, uh people react well, I don't know if I want to say they react better to the lure than the lash. I'm not going to go down that road. But my point here is that, well, you know, I want a pretty planet to walk around. That is me being completely egoistic. That is not me being, you know, uh, uh, solely altruistic in any shape or form. I want a good looking world to walk around on. Bottom line. That's what I want. So you know, for, for a lot of people, and I think this is actually, and, and even, um, George Carlin has called this out accurately 
that, you know, most people that are even into environmentalism and a lot of these other things are, it's not, they don't really care about the planet itself. They just don't want trash in their front yard. Right. And I get that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's necessarily okay either, especially when they want to start laying out legislation uh, for, for just so that they don't have trash on their front yard. Of course, I don't agree with that. But yeah, I, I mean, me wanting a good looking planet is not does not mean that somehow I have to give a shit about humans of the future or that I have to give a shit about X, Y and Z. It's just what I want me quite selfishly. Or should I say in self-interest, because selfishness, of course, the, the raw definition of that is a very bad thing. Selfishness is, you know, you getting what you want or having what you want at the harm, at the expense and harm to others. That's a problem, right? Um, but no, so totally an egoist. I, <laughs> I apologize if there's any confusion on that. Okay. It is simply a matter of what I want. And that is the expression of egoism. And of course, as I've often said on Sovereign Tech, answering the question of what you want is the single most important philosophical precept and question that can possibly be answered by any unique one or individual as it were. But anyway, we've got some great stuff to get into in this episode. Uh, we have a question, we have a tech uh, point to bring up. It's, it's a point, not necessarily a question, but I think it's a, an important one to bring up and, and a point of discussion, uh, which Q and A's are good for. And also we have uh, some religious stuff to get into. Got a great, great documentary shared with me in the Sovereign Tech Polytechnic Telegram group. Boy, if you are not joining that, got quite a few people that have come on board. It is active as fuck, and I am so happy about that. Uh, I mean, I really... So, this past week, like I said, I've been so insanely busy. I mean, and, you know, when I said it was 10 hours days, really, it was more like 18 hour days. Because after those meetings all day, then they want to go out to dinner. And I'm not going to complain about getting a free dinner, but I still have to be on. And I still have to, uh, well, anyway, won't, won't go there, but, <laughs> but I still have to be on. So it's really still work, even though it's, you know, in a, a very uh, a feasting, not festive, but a feasting environment, shall we say. Um, regardless, so I wasn't able to really be active in the Telegram group in the past week. I will continue to do so, but you don't even need me, it seems, because you, all of you, I mean, the, the discussions going on in there are tremendous, and the way that you're helping each other, which is, you know, the heart of, of having some degree of a community uh, around certain ideals or entertainment or whatever, is, is a beautiful and wonderful thing, uh, especially... Oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> especially when I look around at the like Star Trek uh, fan base or the Star Wars fan base, and it's a goddamn fucking mess. In fact, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give you because I don't know. So there are loose ends that I want to tie up of things that I want to talk about with Star Trek. But here's the thing, and, I, and I'm going to be quick on this. Okay, anyway, join, the link is in the show notes. It's in the show notes for every episode that comes out on Zomia 1, so you can't miss it. Join that Telegram group. I guarantee you're going to have a great time. It's amazing the shit that goes on in there. And I, again, I will be active in there. It's just the past week has been insane. But I want to talk about Star Trek for a second. So, real quick, Picard, we're three episodes deep with Picard. The show is fine. Like, I, I like it fine. Ellen's been enjoying it. Ellen, wouldn't you say you've been enjoying Picard? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's must-see must TV on Thursday nights, no doubt about that. Um, 
So no problem there, but you know what has, because of what the past three episodes of Picard have laid out basically for the year 2399 in Star Trek, um, this has raised a lot of questions about canonicity. What is canon in Star Trek? Uh, you know, it, basically what's canon still from stuff that in years previous was considered canon. Now we've kind of talked about this in, in past Q and A's and I'm not going to spend it. I'm really not going to spend a ton of time on this. There is just a point in a recommendation I want to make to you. Okay. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure when I'm going to get to the next Sovereign Trek again. There's loose ends I want to tie up, but I don't know that based upon what I'm about to tell you, I don't know how much point there is to doing a monthly Sovereign Trek. Okay. Uh, basically, so, so here, here, here's the deal. And I talked about this, I think when I reviewed Picard last, maybe it was on a Q and a, or when I did it on a, as a Sovereign Tech episode. And that is, is that you had the 2009 IDW comic called Star Trek Countdown. Now Countdown was meant to be, and it was very good. And it was very, it was a very, very big selling comic. It was very successful because it was well done. Um, and it made a great prelude to the 2009 Star Trek movie, which I actually really, really like. I like the Kelvin timeline movies just fine. And the one of one of the writers for Star Trek Countdown came out, and you can find this online. I even I pulled up the link and everything because I wanted to get to the nitty gritty of a lot of this canonicity stuff. And he comes right out and says, "This is canon." And then another writer comes out and says, "Well, we he he's not in a position of authority to say that." And it's like, okay, well, well, which is it folks now Picard has clearly debunked or not debunked, um, uh, discredited points laid out in the Star Trek in the 2009 IDW Star Trek countdown comic, right? For example, in countdown, uh, data is captain of, you know, of the enterprise in that. And clearly data was able to imprint himself onto B4, uh, you know, the, the, the Android B4. Um, in Picard, that obviously did not happen. Okay. So that comic has been contradicted now with this, this, this really wasn't an issue. Okay. Th this whole thing with canonicity, because I've known since I was a very, very little child that anything I read of Star Trek outside, you know, anything that wasn't on the screen, Roddenberry's basic rule, Gene Roddenberry's rule was anything that wasn't on the screen was not canon. That's fine. Okay. And that, and if you're passionate enough about Star Trek or you just have to get more Star Trek and boy, let me tell you, when I was a young, when I was a kid, I couldn't get enough. And so I was reading all of James motherfucking Blish's, uh, Star Trek novels, many of which, uh, you're, you know, his, well, yeah, they were novels, uh, many of which were basically just retellings of various episodes of Star Trek. Um, I read, you know, everything I could get my fucking hands on. And I still think there are Star Trek books that are just so good that they're worthwhile to continue, you know, reading, even though they were never canon, they were never, ever canon. Okay. I have no problem with that. I don't need Star Trek books or Star Trek comics to be canon. It's, it's not a requirement for me. That's fine. With Star Wars, a little bit different right? Because Disney made it abundantly clear. We have one big giant sandbox that we're playing in here and it all is, it's all real or it's all canon. It all happened right now. When discovery started, uh, CBS basically changed their tune. They said, Oh no, no, no. Star Trek, uh, discovery novels, they're canon. And it would appear to be that Picard 
you know, tie-in material is also canon. Fine. That's great. More Star Trek for me. I'm going to jump on it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read all your comics. I'm going to read all of your, you know, all of your books or listen to them on Audible, whatever. But then you had a guy come out of the Discovery Writers Room who basically said, and, and you had you had two comments. The, the 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 first comment was that well it's canon until it's not. Basically, yeah, we, we the stuff is canon, but if a writer ever really needs to debunk it or you or you know to not debunk it to contradict it, then whatever gets put on the screen is primary. Okay. And then another person comes out and says, well, you know, the nice thing is we've set things up so much with tie-in material that we'll never, a writer will never have to worry about that. And now you're basically getting that the, the running line from both the writing team, you know, for Star Trek the, or the production team for Star Trek in general, not just Discovery, but everything that CBS is doing. Okay. And also, I mean, you have very, very sites, in fact, that I enjoy, like Trek Core and everything. They're basically all coming out and just saying now with this, and particularly since Picard has directly contradicted something that was claimed to be canon, which is the 2009 IDW Countdown comic. They've basically come out and said, no, none of these books, like they're fun little extras, but they're not really canon. Okay, so what I said about... um what was it? The, uh, the, the USS Verity that was in the Star Trek Picard countdown comic from IDW, right? Which was that Odyssey class. Um, okay. No, that's actually not Canon yet. When I thought it was fun that it was Canon, it was really cool for, you know, cause that was a fan creation that was part of a contest for Star Trek online to design the enterprise F. And I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. Wow. A fan, you know, really, really a, like a hardcore fan really injected something that became part of the Star Trek Canon. No, not really. So now the narrative around all of this stuff, the Discovery books, the Discovery comics, the Picard books, which, you know, the, the, there's actually a tie-in Picard novel coming in uh, in a couple days. Um, you know, the Picard comics, all of it. No, not really canon. Because ultimately, it can be superseded by anything that happens on the screen. They will not make any writer beholden to content that has been laid out. Add on to... So that's point one... In why I what what I'm what I want to share with you and what I want to recommend to you and suggest to you. That's point one as to why the novels and the comics, even though they're Discovery or Picard, guess what? Not they're pointless. Okay, like there's no point to buying them or to reading them because ultimately they mean jack shit. Okay, so there's that. But then the second part of this is is that okay? So if even if the producer wants to, uh, you know, a producer for Star Trek wants to claim, yeah, but we've set things up in such a way that you never, that no writer ever has to worry about contradicting, contradicting things. That's because they will only tell you stories kind of like Dead Endless, which I talked about, which is the most recent Discovery novel to come out in December of 2019. They will, they'll only tell stories that really don't mean anything. Like you're never going to get anything to happen in these comics or in these novels that have any weight or bearing on what you see on the screen. And so that's point two of what makes these things absolutely fucking worthless. And they might as well not be canon because they can be superseded at any time and they're not going to have anything meaty or meaningful occur in them. Not really. So fuck it. 
don't bother with these books. Don't bother with these comics. I, I already went through and, and I mean, I, you know, would, would keep Star Trek comics handy for when I want to, you know, go reference something. They're not reference material. They're bullshit. Same with the novels. Hell, I even, I returned some of them on, on Audible, the ones that I could to get a credit back. And I actually, I'll probably listen to the card book and then I'll return it for a credit back too, because who fucking cares? Like I'll listen to it. Okay. Because I'm, I'm intrigued to see what's up, but I'm not going to bother with these books anymore. They have, I, I got into them. I started reading them. I made them required reading because I thought that they would have some goddamn meaning and that they would have some influence on what happens on the screen, but they are not going to. And in fact, even Trek Corps has rightfully brought up that season two of Discovery has already contradicted points made in three of the Star Trek Discovery novels that have come out. And they're not wrong. I, I see exactly what they're talking about. So they don't care. The, the whole canon thing, it's, it, again, and we've known this, but it's pure marketing. It's pure bullshit. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, with Star Wars, I guess maybe it still means something, but I think ultimately with Star Wars, they're just doing the second point of what I laid out, where it is going to take place with things that just have no bearing. Okay. Uh, no weight in what happens on the screen. You're just really not, even though I would argue maybe the canon comic did or, or something like that, but it's ultimately meaningless. And with Star Wars, I mean, they can't even give you a fucking straightforward fact on whether or not the Emperor influenced the midichlorians to birth, you know, Anakin Skywalker in Shmi, right? I mean, they're, they're even having debates about that. No, there should be, the whole point of having a canon is, in fact, this is funny because this will kind of play in nicely to what we're going to talk about later when we get into uh, our religious question that was, uh, that was posited in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group. Uh, you know, the whole point of having a canon is where you can lay the hammer of God down and say, this is how it is in the universe. But you can't even get that. Not with Star Wars, and you sure as fuck can't get it with Star Trek, because they are ready to contradict that shit the instant it's necessary. So just, just fuck it, okay? I apologize. I'm going to apologize to you. When I am wrong, I say so. I apologize for ever inspiring any of you to read Star Trek uh, tie-in material. I really apologize for that because CBS has made it abundantly clear that that stuff doesn't matter. Don't give them, don't give them a fucking dime. And you know what? While you're at it, torrent the fuck out of everything. Torrent, you know, the episodes of Picard, they come out very quickly. Uh, torrent, you know, season three of Discovery, hell, better off, don't even watch it. Torrent the short treks, don't buy the Blu-rays, don't bother. No, I mean, you want to buy the Blu-rays of Enterprise and, uh, you know, in the next generation and the original series. Well, sure, because there you have an actual canon that, that, that made sense, made some kind of sense, but don't fucking bother with the rest of it. Don't just, just, just don't. And fuck the Blu-rays for discovery have been, I mean, they, they are a, a, a dearth of extra material. They're not even worth their fucking salt. Terrible. Anyway. So there you go. There, there, there's my bottom line on that. Now let's get into some, uh, some questions, shall we? But Hey, again, quick Picard. It's been pretty good. In fact, you know, you know, funny thing, <laughs> this, this is tech relevant. Um, there are, there is analysis and there was actually a statement made, um, by Bezos that, well, the statement was, is that, okay, no, the statement wasn't from Bezos. 
The statement was from Vince McMahon. Yes, that Vince McMahon, as in CEO, creator, you know, WWE, right? Uh, no, I know he got it from his dad, but back then it was the WWWF, you know, an extra W there and with the F. But anyway, um, Vince McMahon apparently was approached by um, by major streaming companies, approached to, per- it sounds like, approached to purchase uh, at least the rights to wrestling programming, which basically means some streaming services have reached out to Vince McMahon to buy the WWE. Now, it would make sense. Let's talk about this for a second. It would make sense for it to be Hulu, right? Because Hulu already airs an edited version of, I think, both SmackDown and Raw, or at least they did. Uh, I don't, maybe that's not true anymore once SmackDown moved to Fox. Uh, Netflix, I'm sure, would love to, <laughs> you know, wouldn't they? I don't know that Netflix has the money to do that. But the one that does have the money, the one that could pull it off. Uh, no, you know, actually, NBC, if Peacock did it, that would be interesting. That would put Peacock, that would make Peacock a player. Peacock, of course, is NBC's streaming service with the worst fucking name on the planet. But <laughs> but admittedly, like, I, I, I feel like Peacock is really a, I mean, it, I don't even want to call it a dark horse. You know, because that's saying that, oh, you don't see it coming, but it's going to be great. No, uh, this this does not have uh, enough going for it, I think, to you know, to have legs. CBS All Access only has legs because of Star Trek, right? And even that, like we were just discussing, really should be falling away. Um, I mean, that they have Picard, really. They don't even have Star Trek, <laughs> okay? Um, but... The one that could pull this off, and this is what analysts are pointing at based upon Vince McMahon's comments. I mean, I guess Disney Plus would do it, but I don't think that'd be a fit for Disney. Like, I, I don't I don't think if Disney's got the money to buy them out, to buy out the WWE. But again, that that doesn't really fit their corporate image, in my opinion. I think the analysts suggesting that Amazon is approaching the WWE to buy the WWE. Now that makes sense because that will sink, in my opinion. And not that the analysts were talking about this, but in my opinion, as as a wrestling fan, uh, not really of the WWE for the past decade, but anyway, that makes sense because that will hook in the young audience that I think Amazon is having a hard time trapping. Amazon, in fact, we'll get into this in a upcoming Sovereign Tech episode. Amazon has no problem cinching in, you know, your millennials and all these others. Okay, it's like Gen Z or, you know, the younger, much younger generations, even younger than millennials, that Amazon, I think, really wants, which is why they have their, their fire tablets for kids. Um, I think that, you know, but but those don't necessarily sell well. And I think that this is a way to hook them in to basically getting an Amazon Prime, uh, uh, you know, subscription, Right which allows for prime video, which would ultimately allow for access to WWE content. Uh, I could see this happening that, that it's fucking crazy. You know, I mean the idea, I mean, even though I think the, the WWE has been shit for a long time, I mean, it really, really has for, for a decade or more. Uh, but I'm, you know, the, if I were to ignore my concerns around Amazon fucking owning everything, which by the way, I predicted year six, seven years ago in my 2099 episode. 
Okay, go listen back to that and hear what I say about Amazon and that. And oh, yeah, back then people thought it was outrageous for me to make those claims. Now the Amazon World Domination Tour is, you know, showing it's uh, showing what it's got, including maybe owning the world, the world wrestling or, you know, world world wrestling entertainment. Um, But if I if I set that aside, if I set aside my concerns around Amazon owning fucking everything. Okay, and the problems there too. Uh, this would actually be a good thing for the WWE because if it was no longer public, right? And I, I don't know how, how the purchase would go, but if it were no longer public and if it had Amazon's money behind it, as in the WWE didn't have to make money off of, I mean, you, you got to understand the WWE since the 90s has had a real challenge with, frankly, making money. And part of that challenge was, is that a lot of their longtime sponsors from the eighties onward really got skittish during the nineties, during the attitude era, because they were playing, you know, they're doing such extreme shit. You know, I mean, you had bra and panties matches, uh, the stuff that, you know, stone cold and the rock were saying and what DX was doing and so on. Um, they were losing sponsors right and left. In fact, for a while they got kicked off of USA because the USA network couldn't handle it anymore. Right. And remember they went off to uh, TNN or what would later become spike. And you know, like the, they had to go elsewhere because it was so controversial. Um, if they had Amazon's money behind it and the WWE was really only something to just hook more people into an Amazon prime subscription, uh, maybe the WWE could get controversial and extreme again, which I would be, you know, again, not worrying about what this means as far as Amazon's power within, you know, the infrastructure we exist in today. Uh, it would, I would see it as only a good thing if it happened, but I, you know, me being an actually intelligent and, and very awake human being, um, I do have to worry about, well, wait a minute, how much stroke is this giving, how much more stroke is this giving Amazon? And that's a problem. Um, but wow. I mean, and, and granted, it's not like the WWE exists without competition, right? And it's not like this sort of thing hasn't happened before. I mean, we've had ultra rich guys. We've had the quote unquote richest men in the world by wrestling organizations in the past. It's not crazy. Ted Turner. Ted Turner bought the NWA slash WCW, turned it into WCW, you know, back in the late 80s. This is not crazy for this sort of thing to happen. Uh, But again, the WWE does not exist without competition. I mean, you have the AEW, which they just signed a multi-year deal with TNT, uh, of all ironies. And I mean, you have the NWA, which is, I think, doing very well. I don't know the exact metrics on a lot of that and and how that's turning over to money for Billy Corgan, um, who owns it, you know, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, but you know, I, I get the sense it's doing pretty well and I hope that it is, uh, but it's kind of funny. I mean, because now, you know, being a wrestling fan of organizations outside of the WWE is almost like an ethical imperative now (laughs) because you got to stop those fuckers. You know, who knew that Chris Jericho would be leading the, the, the rebellion (laughs) against Amazon. Right. I mean, if this, if this ends up happening, I saw that this morning and, and, well, let's just say that there was some defecation that went on. <laughs> I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, but regardless, so just putting that out there, something interesting, uh, you know, to talk about. Let's get into uh, what was actually emailed to me. I thought this was really, really interesting. Coming from a 
Dynamite Sovereign Tech listener, longtime listener, longtime supporter, and I appreciate it. I'm going to read it here. Uh, Brian, I just had the below exchange uh, with my wife, who is not usually very concerned about online privacy. And there are, uh, Stanley breaking in, there are pictures that lay out some of this, and we'll, we'll dig into some of this, but I, I want to, we, we should read about it. This was enough to creep her out. Target sent her the below email within minutes of making a purchase without her ever having ever shared her email. It seems that the, uh, they must have purchased her email from a list that was associated with her debit card or are otherwise working with a marketing firm that has access to that information. Creep level 5,000. Now I'm going to read that email or a bit of that email quick, and then we'll read the rest of the listener's email. This is the email from, uh, from his wife. Let's see how, and it, so it's target store guest survey, two minutes. That's the subject line of the email. And this is from January, 2020, by the way, how was your visit? That, that's what it says. And please take a moment uh, to complete our short survey about your most recent shopping experience at the uh, at the store it gives a location, but I won't share that. Uh, your opinion matters to us. How likely are you to recommend Target to a friend or family member? And anyway, it's a survey and it goes down. Now you could say survey, not the biggest you know deal in the world. It's just a fucking survey. Aha. But what the big deal is, is that she never gave Target her email, but she made a purchase there. How, why the fuck is she getting emailed about this? Okay, that's where it gets creepy. Let's read on with the uh, with the listener's email. I had a similar experience a few weeks ago at Home Depot where I needed to make a return but did not have the receipt or the card that I used to make the purchase. In this case, they told me to swipe any card instead. I gave them a different card from a different bank, which I had never used with them before, and they were able to pull up my purchase history to make the return. In this case, it was obvious that they were using identifiers on the mag strip of the card as a proxy ID to pull up some customer profile that included past purchase. I know that using cash is nothing new when it comes to maintaining privacy, but it is easy to forget how that act is just or yeah, how that act is just as or more important than other things like not having an echo at home. I think that we will both be switching to cash from now on, at least at big box stores where their point of sale systems, POS systems, uh, is linked to their payment processor. I thought it was also a good example of the blurred distinction between online and meat space privacy. Uh, Ave Satanis, right on. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. I just look to my right and I'm holding in my hand a money clip. In fact, this is a money clip that has my symbol on it. What is my symbol? No, not the sovereign tech symbol, uh, but the symbol of the galactic empire from star Wars. Uh, it's actually, it's something I think I got from think geek many years ago. Of course you had to get it from think geek many years ago because now thinking think geek isn't think geek anymore. There is not there. I mean, the brand exists out there, but the website, as you remember it and the store, as you remember, it, no longer exists. Uh, I mean, EB bought it out years ago, right? But then, or not EB, I keep calling it EB GameStop bought them out years ago, but now GameStop is basically, and, and originally they were still letting ThinkGeek run as an independent organization, more or less, but now they've just folded it in and, you know, and you, you, there is no real thinkgeek.com anymore. Um, at least last time I checked and that was a few months ago because I was trying to, to repurchase, uh, actually something else that has my symbol on it. Um, 
So anyway, I'm holding this money clip because, and the reason I have this money clip is for the very reason that this brilliant emailer with the right answer brought up. So, and, and I love this, you know, and, and sometimes I ask myself, it's like, well, you know, I don't get as many questions as I used to. And you know why I think I don't get as many questions as I used to into Sovereign Tech? That's because the people that have been listening enough, I think a lot of you already had the answers. And so you didn't have to have to ask me questions in the first place because you're clearly highly intelligent people, no doubts. But the other part is that I think after you listen to Sovereign Tech enough, you actually, I mean, you still listen to me because maybe I'm funny or you enjoy what I'm talking about or you're catching up on news or whatever, and that's fine. But you don't need Sovereign Tech to tell you what to make of things anymore, right? Your cynicism has gone into, you know, has gone into turbo drive, okay? <laughs> it's gone into overdrive. Uh, you're, you, you have the, I don't want to call it the Sovereign Tech mindset because I wouldn't be so presumptuous, but for lack of a better way of phrasing it, you have the sovereign tech minds, mindset now. You have the privacy mindset, the galactic mindset, etc. And I think that's why actually a lot of the questions have kind of, you know, why they've sort of fizzled out a bit, shall we say. Because, I mean, I used to get tons of them. and But now, you guys, gals, and Zs, you get it. You get it. You know what to do. Right? And the, the perfect response to this, both the Home Depot situation and the Target situation, how did they end up getting access to your, to your email? Yep, you're probably right. Either it's through some kind of marketing company or because Target bought out an email list from another company or Target acquired some kind of online store that maybe you gave your email to before that you use that card, that same card for in the past. And now Target knows to email you there or at the very least, they'll give it a shot to update their own databases or whatever. This is, this is why we talk about the other solution here besides going to cash. Okay. I mean, and look folks, yeah, it'd be awesome if people accepted Bitcoin. It's not there yet. Okay. It's not, not saying Bitcoin isn't the solution. Of course, it's a solution to so many things. All right. And I'm fully supportive, but it's not there yet. So cash, that's a thing. Um, but the other part of this is account minimalism right? That we talk about all the time. We talk about software minimalism, app minimalism, which are the same, but account minimalism have as few accounts as possible. You think, you know, that, that, that you setting up, uh, uh, you know, an, uh, an account with an independent, uh, online shop of some kind that somehow that's protecting you from your information getting, uh, collected, by, you know, one of these, you know, by one of the big boys, right? By one of the big retailers, whatever that, you know, Walmart, uh, you know, be it Walmart, be it Amazon, be it uh, a Target, whatever. It's not protecting you from shit because most of these little stores end up getting subsumed and acquired by a lot, you know, by, by, by these companies or these companies willfully, maybe they stay independent, but they willfully for a pretty good chunk of change, sell off your information to Target, Walmart, Amazon, go down the list, right? It's just a way to subsidize their operations. So that's why the emailer, rightfully so, I think brought up, I mean, A, you know, that's why you want to keep account minimalism. If you're going to these online stores for whatever reason, most of them, in fact, especially with a lot of stuff that legislation that doesn't even have to do with America, have switched to where they're, they're almost forced to have a guest account option where you know, and, and that doesn't mean that, 
That doesn't mean you're necessarily in the clear. Okay. But you know, use the guest checkout if you can. And, and if you don't have to have the receipt or get the email or whatever about it, all right, or use bullshit emails, whatever for, for, for setting some of this stuff, that's an option, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, a real answer here, you know, cash is, yeah, I know cash has identifiers on it. Right. And that ultimately the U S government, or at least the federal reserve or whatever, could probably, you know, and banks could trace your purchasing uh, power and your purchases and your purchase history to some degree with, you know, the identifiers on cash, right? That, yep, that could happen. That could happen. Okay. I'm not saying that that's impossible. However, that's wholly different from entire corporations having your purchase history getting access to your email and so much more because the emailer brings it right up. This is another place where there's the blurred distinction between your online privacy and your meat space privacy. They your your online life and your meat space life. They are completely intertwined unless you take very intentional. It's a very important word. I know it's a buzzword for a lot of marketing people, but it needs to be, you need to take it seriously and forget about the market marketing hullabaloo. Okay. We need to be very intentional and conscious and purpose, uh, you know, driven with purpose to reclaim this privacy and cash done right is a, is a way to make that happen. I, again, I hold this money clip as a reminder and I use it. I mean, it, it's my wallet. I don't have like an actual wallet. Um, you know, this is, this is my wallet. I hold this as a reminder that in privacy cat with, or as far as privacy goes, Cash is still king in this world. And fortunately, we, you know, especially if you live in America, you live in a place where cash uh, also is very much not just in privacy, but is also very much still king. I mean, and it, and it really is. Okay, you might not be able to do online purchases or things like this. I mean, we could get into talking about strategies of buying gift cards instead of, you know, uh, using your credit card and blah, 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 and all these things. I mean, this also, but really when it comes into where you want to do online purchases and get gift cards, that's where Bitcoin comes in, right? And becomes, you know, the real powerhouse as far as that goes. But regardless, yeah, I mean, buying, you know, we talk about this all the time and it's not a new idea. It's not Sovereign Tech's idea by any stretch of the imagination. It's been around for decades, but buying local, right? Buying local, buying from, you know, the brick and mortar, and using cash to do so that way there's no identifier as far as it goes. And I know how out of vogue that has really become, because I mean, I've been there where I have handed the person, you know, the, the, uh, the cashier, I've handed them cash and they, they look at it, you know, like I, I handed them a, a, you know, I don't know, a tissue with my snot on it or something. Right. I mean, it's almost like they're disgusted, like <laughs> cash. You know, and then they have to think they have to do the math in their head. Yeah. It's funny. Cause remember <laughs> idiocracy, Ellen and I were actually rewatching this recently. Um, which, which by the way, this is one of those movies still the, still only on DVD, never got a Blu-ray release, never got a 4k release. You, uh, you, <laughs> you want to know why I think why that is, they don't want people to watch it. <laughs> I don't think they want, they want that out there. I mean, you can't avoid that. Like it, it gets, 
it gets schlepped off to streaming services as part of, you know, a larger movie catalog. I don't think anyone's purposely like looking to have idiocracy there, but it adds to your numbers if you're a streaming service. But I think part of the reason that never, I mean, cause everybody knows this movie, you know, everybody remembers it when you bring it up to them. Everybody saw it. It's just, they don't want you to like, you know, I, I guess, you know, make it part of your, make it a part of your everyday. And in fact, in recent years there, I think there's been active suppression of the movie Idiocracy, where you have had write-ups by quote-unquote woke people saying, oh, actually, this movie is, uh, it's it's uh, derogatory, it's insulting, it's racist, it's blah, blah, blah. Now, I'll be the first to admit, like, the whole IQ thing in the beginning is stupid. I mean, IQ is that, that concept, okay, of intelligence quotient is scientific, it's not science, but it's nonsense. It's scientific jargon nonsense. It's crap. I'll be the first to admit that, but a lot of the more abstract points of it, um, I think, I mean, even, you know, (laughs) look, I can appreciate the rock, but we've, we've even got the rock speaking of wrestling out there. I mean, he's constantly cracking jokes about becoming the president and he's like, what, he's going to run with Oprah. I mean, he just said that like in the past week and there are even jokes about it previous to that. Look, I like the rock fine. He has no qualification, and, and, and I'm an anarchist. I don't, I don't want anybody in office, but he has no qualifications to be a fucking president. None. You know, if you are to take the position seriously, which who the hell does, but you, you get my point. Trump doesn't take it seriously. That's for damn sure. No qualifications whatsoever. But it's so funny because in, in, in Idiocracy, Terry Crews' you know, character, the president, his first name's Dwayne, just like The Rock. But anyway, I bring up Idiocracy because, well, A, I think everybody should rewatch it and pay the fuck attention. But in that, you have where everybody's got, you know, the tattoo on their wrist, not to get any kind of Mark of the Beast kind of stuff, which, well, that'll be a nice segue into what we're going to talk about next. But you have where, you know, like, I mean, there is still cash in the future, but it's clearly something that is that is designed, it, it's seedy in the future, right? It's only used for, you know, buying sex workers and whatever else. But like when you're at the hospital, you know, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have the tattoo, like the guy literally freaks out, you know, and they don't even know how to, they don't know how to count change. In fact, the guy who's even handing over cash clearly doesn't even know how to spend it in the movie. I, I you know, he like, he doesn't keep track of it. They can't do math and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, it, it raises the point and it's, it's already happening today where people don't know how to handle, uh, purchasing power without a machine, you know, without, without a, without a computer to, to do the business, right? Like even something as simple as a credit card reader or Apple pay, Samsung pay, Google pay, whatever the fuck. Yeah. Using cash. Yeah. I, I mean, shit <laughs> should be a badge of endearment, but it's not. But it is a solution to this. It, it really, really is. And I think we would do well, you know, as, as a sign, as a, you know, kind of a, a little unconscious symbol of being privacy advocates. Let's bring back the money clip. Make it sexy. I, I, I think that that's a fine and dandy thing. So great email to send in. I, uh, I really appreciate that. Now, we need to get into our, oh boy. I mean, this is kind of a review, but really it's the, the person specifically shared it in the sovereign tech telegram group saying, you know, stallion, I'd love to hear what you think about this. You know, like what, what are your thoughts about this? Have you talked about it before, etc. And so I want to break into it. The documentary is linked to in the show notes. 
and it's titled Caesar's Messiah, the Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus. Now, this is based off of, so the person asked me, you know, in the group, like, have, have you heard about this? And I was like, yeah, I, I've mentioned offhand, like I'll say one sentence at certain points whenever we're talking about Jesus or religion or whatever, that, um, you know, like I'll say, you know, did Jesus really exist? It's like, well, do you believe that, uh, uh, you know, that there's some you know, Roman conspiracy or that Julius Caesar created him basically, uh, even though in this case it wouldn't actually be Julius Caesar, but you know, you think that that Caesar invented the whole concept to pacify the Jews and pacify Romans, blah, blah, blah. So like I've said it offhand in that way, but I got that idea from a book that came out almost, well, no, I think about 15 years ago now, uh, by Joseph Atwill, called Caesar's Messiah, which is the same name as the documentary. And in fact, Joseph Atwill um, is in it, and he does a hell of a job. Uh, to talk about the documentary quickly, as documentary in the abstract, as in its production, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is, I don't know when this was made. Um, you can tell this isn't exactly, this is not a professional documentary, as in this is not something that would have been on the History Channel, even though the History Channel doesn't play documentaries anymore either. Woo! Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> they should just call it the entertainment channel or something. But, um, it's like, it's the WWE version of history. And, <laughs> but anyway, um, Joseph Atwell is in this does a great job. Uh, the information laid out and there are other people in the, in the documentary, the information laid out in it is very well presented in my opinion. Um, it, it's overall, even though there's some, in my opinion, there are some contradictory points in this documentary that, that are, are, are kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Like I, again, it's, it's not, in fact, I really enjoyed the joy, enjoyed that. It was trying to be, it wasn't doing the whole, you know, like, and, and, and trying to play with your emotions. It was a straight presentation more or less of the facts or of the, uh, or of the theories, um, and, and in that sense, I, I thought it was very well done. I enjoyed watching this documentary because I get tired of these documentaries that come out now, the ones on YouTube or whatever that are supposedly by truthers, you know, quote unquote, people who are into the truth. I shouldn't say like 9-11 truthers. I just mean people that are into the truth, uh, like the truth movement, which at some point we should probably talk about that. Um, but being done by them who would argue that, oh, everything is mind control. Everything is this. Everything is, is trying to persuade you, you know, to, to believe in power and all that. But yet they're using the very tactics that they say the government is using against you or that marketing is using against you and all this. And I always feel like that's really contradictory. That was not a problem with the documentary Caesar's Messiah. So I just want to put it out there that I really appreciate that. Now, as far as what I think about the information presented and how does it fit in, say, with my own thoughts, opinions, ideas, and facts? Um, well, I'll tell you this. Okay. So th again, I read the book by Joseph Atwill back when it first came out. And I, I know there have been, um, there was a, like a, the Flavian signature edition. I'm not exactly sure what was added to that. That came out in like 2011. Um, I have it, but I, I haven't really, you know, I haven't checked it out. M maybe he presents new info. I don't know. But anyway, the basic gist here is the basic theory is that the Flavian family of Roman emperors, which before that were the, uh, you know, the Julio Claudians, right. Which would, you know, Julius Caesar and onward that they invented 
the entire Christian religion. They even wrote the New Testament, or they wrote the Gospels anyway, right? Um, that they, they were behind this whole thing. And we'll, we'll talk about some of what gets laid out, some of the, you know, some of the things that are facts, some of the things that are speculation as far as that goes. We'll, we'll get into that. But they did so to pacify uh, the Roman people, also directly to create a anti-Semitic work, okay? But it was also, you know, not just the Roman people, but to pacify the Jewish people, but then also to create a stain, basically, against any Jews that would not accept the Gospels as somehow the fulfillment of their messianic prophecies, okay? So this was all to pacify. Now, the documentary doesn't touch on this as much as Joseph Atwill's book does, but if the idea is, is to pacify rebellions, there's an irony, and, and one that, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying they're wrong in this, in this abstract point that they bring up in the documentary, which is that religion gets used to start wars, to bolster centralized power, um, you know, of governments and everything. In fact, this, this documentary had a very anti-government flair which I, I really, really appreciated as well. But like if Christianity was meant to pacify people, <laughs> you know, and, and keep them from wanting to go get into war and, and revolt for it to be used now in the same way to actually foment war. And uh, I, I mean, like there's, there's a little bit of a contradiction there, but I'm sure there's ways in which they'd explain that away. And, and I think that's just really an editing problem. And they, they didn't realize that they were kind of laying um, that out. Uh, but I mean, you know, the abstract of the abstract, they're not wrong about that religion does, you know, especially organized religion does get used to centralize power, control the masses in whatever direction you want them to go. Do you want them to be, uh, you know, pacified against the government as in you don't want them to revolt against the government? Do you want them to go to war with another, you know, another government slash religion? Yes. Religion gets used for both. Like, I, I think that's absolutely true. So it's not really, I, I mean, I, it just, it seemed contradictory at the end. And I think people who, I think people would walk away from this, you know, thinking that, that, well, that, that's a bit of a problem. Now the documentary Caesar's Messiah, it, it makes, it's about an hour and 20 minutes and the book, the adjoining book as well. It makes a pretty good case for this. It makes a pretty good case that Jesus never existed and that the Flavians basically created this whole thing. Um, there are elements of this case that I think are sketchy. Like the, there's points, especially with the documentary that they get to at the end where I'm like, uh, no, that that's, you really got to twist things up a little bit to make that narrative fit. Okay. For example, they bring up how there are events that happened in, because so, so the, the, the main gist that they're getting at here is that the messianic, the Jewish messianic prophecies that the Flavians created, uh, this whole, you know, this whole religion to somehow bring resolution to the Jewish messianic prophecies. Because in the first century CE, the Jews were a real rebellious problem for the Roman Empire. I mean, and, and, and it was, it's interesting. I mean, it was a threat. Most people, I mean, and, and I don't, I don't know what to necessarily make of this, but your, your average Westerner, okay, for lack of a better term, 
your average American or even European or whatever, you know, they're used to, you know, maybe you saw King of Kings, maybe you saw Ben-Hur, maybe, you know, think of the, the, the New Testament, uh, or, you know, think of the, like the New Testament movies that you saw or movies about the life of Jesus. And yeah, you might get something about Barabbas. You might get something about, you know, these characters who were, uh, you know, and you know about some of these uh, rebellions that were, you know, that the Jews were, well, that they made against the Roman Empire. You might know about some of these things, but it always seems like some rabble rousers, right? Well, what a lot of people don't understand is that really at the time, and this, the, the documentary or the book doesn't really get into this, but it should have. At the time, I mean, look, these Jewish rebellions, these revolts, they had navies. I mean, there was a Jewish navy, you understand. They, this was not just some rabble rousers throwing rocks, you know, in, in guerrilla warfare style against Roman legions. This was a serious problem for the Romans. And it's not the first time. I mean, the Romans had problems, right? I mean, you have the story of Spartacus. You have, uh, you know, Hannibal of Carthage. Uh, I mean, you, you go down the list of the amount, I mean, the constant rebellions within its own sphere of influence that Rome had to deal with. I mean, it was non-fucking-stop. It, it really was, for hundreds of years. And these Jews, you know, these, these rebels, these Jewish rebels, were bolstered by these messianic prophecies. You know, almost these, these end-of-days prophecies. In fact, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But they were bolstered by this. And that's what gave them the confidence to take on the largest empire, the largest military that the world had seen at the time. Uh, you know, and arguably the most powerful military that the world had seen at the time. They were bolstered by these messianic prophecies. No, God is on our side. And eventually, if we just keep going, if we keep fighting hard enough, the Messiah will appear and will give and will win, you know, give us the victory. So the Jew or the Romans, particularly the Flavians, who were in power at the time. And the Flavian era runs from about 69, you get a, you get a good like 30 years or so. Uh, actually, it goes well beyond that, but the, the kind of the main time frame of the two emperors we're really going to talk about here, uh, that being Vespasian and his son Titus, okay, ran about 30 years from 69 CE to 96 CE. And Vespasian is the one who starts setting all of this up, okay, uh, where he's setting up his son to basically, that being Titus, Titus Flavius, to be set up as the Messiah, okay? And so they twisted a lot of the words, and in creating the Gospels, particularly the Gospels, okay, they set it up so that the Messiah actually doesn't have to be Jewish, even though arguably it has to, you know, to, to the Old Testament, it has to be somebody that is the descendant of the house of David, right? In some form or fashion. So Joseph Atwills and the documentaries overall point is, is that Titus Flavian is, uh, or Titus Flavius is, he is the answer. He is the Messiah, right? And so they basically, you know, Vespasian and Titus, they set up these gospels and they date them 40 years previous to where, I mean, you know, history is written by the victors. So they made it sound like, okay, that there was this guy, Jesus, right, who was, you know, the Jewish Messiah, 
he was around and that he would come back in 40 years and, or that, that he would come back to life after he was crucified. And they, they backdated everything. And that's why things that happen in the gospels that, wow, we can look, you know, in 72 CE where these events like things with the temple and whatever else, nothing left, you know, no stone, no stone left unturned, blah, 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 that these events happened. And it seems prophetic when you read the gospels, but they're not really prophetic because the Flavians made, you know, wrote it all up after it happened. So for, you know, as an example, and and this is kind of, this is such a big subject, you know, like it's very hard for me to not just want to jump around everywhere. Um, Traditionally, Christians believe that the gospels were, or the new Testament, I should say, the new Testament was more or less fully compiled by 92 CE. That, that would be when uh, John, as in that John, okay, you know, like the one that also wrote gospel, was putting everything together, uh, and and that's when he had his vision about the book of Revelation and everything, and he wrote that down. And so so the traditional idea is, is that the New Testament canon was put together, compiled, fully written in 92 CE. Now, you would run into, uh, you know, a couple, two, three hundred years later, where you would get the canonized version of the New Testament that would be that would be decided upon um, by the church fathers, but traditionally and especially you know more Protestant groups and everything, they look at they see the gospel as being as all that stuff being finally done and written in 92 CE. Okay, um, and the irony is is that that's probably not wrong. That <laughs> that's probably about when Titus actually unleashed. Um, what we know of is the New Testament, or at least certain parts of it. I mean, because here's the thing. we, While there's some debate of who Paul was originally before he became uh, an apostle, you know, was he Saul? I mean, there's there's whole books that, that, that go into that. Um, or was he always Paul, whatever, okay? Um, Paul is one of the characters in the New Testament that we're very confident actually existed, Okay. Uh, he is he is someone that because he had commentary uh, or had correspondence I should say um, you know with with other other Romans of his day um, you know Romans that we also happen to have the works of but the rest of the apostles Peter and so on yeah maybe not <laughs> they, they might not have existed uh, oh God oh this. <laughs> No pun intended there. There's there's so much information to, to get into, um, you know, with this. So this whole theory, you know, admittedly, it crosses a lot of T's, dots, a lot of I's. Like, it, it, it makes a lot of sense when you put a lot of this stuff together. For example, um, you know, again, with that dating of 92 CE, it is well known that about 70, 75% or so, maybe more, of the book of Revelation is really copying and pasting from the Old Testament. No, Nobody, even the staunchest of Protestants that think that, oh yes, actually Revolu- Re- the book of Revelation was written in 92 CE or whatever, nobody really argues against that. And, and it's apparent, you can't help but notice it. Okay, um, an interesting idea is that a character who I've talked about many times, Flavius Josephus, okay, or otherwise just known as Josephus, who was a Jew that got welcomed into the Flavian family, again, who supposedly created this entire Christ conspiracy or religious conspiracy. 
Uh, he, you know, he wrote Antiquities of the Jews. I mean, this is a guy, a very learned scholar of Jewish history and clearly of Torah. Okay. So you get this guy, <laughs> you know, the Flavians welcome in this guy who is a, you could argue a Jew of Jews who really knows his shit. And in fact, also it gets interesting because there's an argument, there's a historical argument that Josephus was really a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was originally an Essene, or maybe he was always an Essene, right? So at this time in first century CE and going back a few hundred years from that, you had three major groups of Judaism, okay? Three denominations, as it were, just like you have a multitude of denominations of Christians today, okay? You had the Pharisees, who were your more conservative bunch, very, you know, literalist by the book. You had the, Sa or you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, who are, were, you know, a little more ethereal about their interpretations and everything uh, of, of Torah. Still Jews. And then you had the Essenes, who they are the ones that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Essenes, while they were very pacifistic by nature, they knew that there was going to be a time, and you can find this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we only know about this now because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and the fact that a lot of the books in the Dead Sea Scrolls are found nowhere else might point at the campaign of what the Flavians were trying to do against the Jews at the time, where they burned all of these very rebellious texts because the end days, okay, basically the Essene version of the book of revelation. And depending upon how you interpret the book of revelation, I mean, there is a great war that happens in there, but for the Essenes, even though they were pacifists, they knew that there was a time when the Messiah would come and they were going to go to war. Now this was in no, by no means for the Essenes was this a metaphorical or allegorical war because the books about their end times were specific right down to what kind of swords you make, how long are these swords? Again, the documentary doesn't get into this part, so you know I'm adding this in here for you. Okay, uh, I mean it's very very particular of what they're going to do. But the Essenes knew someday they were going to go to war, and it would seem that they eventually knew that that person who they would go to war with is none other than the Romans themselves. They were expecting this. They were waiting for this. Now we can get into some other aspects that has to do with the cycles of Venus that might play a part into this, but that, that has nothing to do with Caesar's Messiah. And that has to do more with what the Essenes believed and perhaps where their uh, Jewish religion or their, their Jewish interpretation, their, the interpretation of the Jewish religion that they practice came from. That's another story. And if you want to ask me about the Essenes, I'm happy to talk about them. Uh, but that, that's a whole other ballgame. But this group that was very, very popular, okay, the Essenes were very, very popular until one day they're just gone. Or perhaps they got subsumed. Either they were conquered, likely, or they got subsumed into Rome or Christianity or a little bit of both. Because again, Flavius Jose or Josephus, who was welcomed into the Flavian family, but was a Jew, again, was probably an Essene, or at least was very knowledgeable of what the Essenes said. And so this guy, according to Joseph Atwill, gets hired to write the Gospels and to twist 
the Essene version of the end of days into a way that will make it so the Jews don't revolt, so that they don't go to war. And in fact, we will give them the very Messiah that they are looking for. And that Messiah, though, would be, I mean, yeah, you had Jesus, but then he dies and then he's going to come back. When he comes back, it is none other than Titus Flavius. Now, it's important to note, and this is something that gets, you know, you have your funny areas of translation. The New Testament, especially uh, in the book of Matthew, even in the book of Acts and so on, constantly, directly translated from the Greek, constantly uses the word generation. That a lot of events are going to happen in a generation. The, the, the power of the kingdom will come back in a generation. I'll return in a generation, etc. Now, modern translators of the Bible will, they, they try to say, well, actually this Greek word can mean this. It doesn't have to mean in a generation. In a biblical generation or, a, or the Jewish concept of a generation is 40 years. And that's why it fits so well when Jesus's life ends that, it, you know, the, the, the Titus Flavius coming into power fits into that generation. It fits into that 40 years later. Of course, what happens is the Jews won't bow down to Titus Flavius. And so Titus has to do the business and he has to, you know, he has to start slaughtering Jews and trying to end these revolts. And he goes whole hog on the matter. In fact, I would dare argue that the Roman campaign against the Jewish rebels at the time is what actually weakened Rome to such a level that allowed future revolts or when the Visigoths come over the hill to finally win, even though that would take, you know, centuries. But it was, it was enough of a demoralizing factor in Rome that it started bringing Rome down from, you know, it's one-time greatness. And I mean, and, and it was such a problem for so long that eventually you get to another Flavian 300 years later, that being Constantine, as in Constantine the Great, who basically just has to say, okay, we can't really quash these Jews. They won't bow down before our statues. They won't consider, they won't take the imperial cult seriously and recognize Caesars as deities. So we are just going to have to force, we're going to have to make Christianity the, you know, the legal religion and the only legal religion. Now, I think there's other aspects. And again, a lot of it has to do with not worshiping on the Sabbath and so on, but there's, there's, there's a lot more behind it, but the idea that it just, it wasn't working and they basically had to sign Christianity into law to finally get its way. Yeah, that's what happened, it, you know, it, because they, they, those damn pesky Jews, you just can't hold them down. And of course, that seems very apparent considering, such as myself, we're still here. And I don't see any Romans around. Odd thing. But regardless, um, oh, there's, there's so much to get into with this. Uh, I mean, the way that the, jo the Josephus thing, I kind of want to touch on this. Um, it's interesting that more or less the works of Josephus are the only independent record that we have at all of Jesus Christ, you know, or of Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the Christ, uh, Jesus performing miracles. That's basically what Josephus says. It's kind of weird, right? 
that that's the only other book, contemporary book, at least, that we have that points at that Jesus even existed. Because unless, you know, you have, I mean, that that's the only other thing you can point at from that time period that in any way mentions Jesus. And look, there's a lot of things that happen in the Gospels themselves that, you know, whether or not like Romans knew who Jesus were, you got to remember that in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is resurrected, he's not the only one. There's a bunch of people that are resurrected. Now, I think it'd be interesting to wonder what did, if, if, this, if this whole conspiracy theory that the Flavians wrote the Gospels is true or created Christianity is true. Uh, why did they bother to put that part in, that, that other people would end up getting resurrected? Is it just to fulfill some aspects of, like, say, what's in the book of Ezekiel or in the book of Isaiah? Maybe. Or were they wanting other characters that they could present as deities, not just Titus Flavius as Christ or as, as the resurrection of Jesus, that he is Jesus returned, that he is the Messiah? I don't know, but you got to understand this, that it is, it, it, it's nay impossible that nobody bothered to write as, uh, you know, as voracious of writers that Romans were, that nobody bothered to write about the fact that, holy shit, there's a bunch of people who rose from the dead and are walking around. Not just Jesus. No, no, no. And not just Lazarus. There's a bunch of people that the, 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 the New Testament is abundantly clear about that. And nobody writes about this. Nobody. Mind boggling. But. The Flavian conspiracy theory kind of makes sense of that, right? To where actually none of the shit happened. It was all a story written ex post facto, but it's not a fact, but it's, it's all done after the fact to try and present Titus Flavius as the Jewish Messiah. Again, fits a lot of bills. It's, it's an interesting theory. Okay, I mean, and, and, and to say nothing of, you know, like the first Pope outside of, say, Peter, uh, Simon Peter, the first pope is none other than another Flavian, right? Clement the first, he was he was a Flavian. I mean, the the Flavian influence on the early church is inarguable. Um, even a guy who and and this has been one of the, this is one of those weird things um, that that Christians don't like to think about a whole lot. You had another Flavian, that being Philo uh, of Alexandria. Okay, now and 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 we can. There's a lot of history to get into around the Alexanders. Now, I don't mean the Alexanders as in like descendants of Alexander the Great. At the time in the first century CE, you had a very, very influential and wealthy Jewish family who basically filled in the gap that the Herodians or the, you know, that the Herods left who were sort of, you know, the rich family, uh, you know, coming into the first century CE. Uh, the Alexanders were, uh, yeah, again, very powerful Jewish family and all this, and but they they would get subsumed, and we know this from the New Testament itself, right? Because the New Testament even mentions uh, uh, Princess Bernice, who would end up becoming uh, like a, a consort and wife to none other than Titus Flavius. Amazing that she gets mentioned in the New Testament. That's kind of weird, but anyway, the Alexanders, very 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 wealthy family, but you have a guy. Within that family, again, that family gets subsumed into the Flavians, just like Josephus did, that being Philo of Alexandria. You know him? Yeah, yeah. So Christians don't like to talk about this guy too much because somehow this guy has all these wild, or not wild, they're, they're actually Stoic, but he has all of these Stoic ideas that he uh, you know, puts together in his varying books 
And it's amazing, but all these concepts that he lays out look like they're pulled right out of Christianity. But with this theory, it would actually be the reverse, is that the Flavians just took something from one of their cousins and tossed it in. Like, oh, well, we like what Philo's writing. You know, Titus is saying, we like what Philo's writing. Hey, Josephus, could you put in what Philo uh, was writing about? Because I think this is all really great. Because the Flavians were very famous Stoics. Of course, Stoicism itself is a system of control, much like religion, that governments use to, you know, to basically cajole people into thinking, um, okay, no, you need to deal with pain. You need to deal with suffering and, you know, just think to, you know, the future is going to be better. Don't worry. Just keep going, keep dealing with it instead of actually caring about your intrinsic passions, right? Which is what hedonists, ethical hedonists, uh, which is what most hedonists historically were, not the term hedonism today, you know, would, would practice, would say that, no, 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 no. You don't have to put up with how things are today. You go out there and you do what makes you fucking happy with a vengeance, well, that's not a very good thing for governments to have, right? Because, I mean, we've talked about this where, I mean, I, or I've brought this up many times, that I think society as we know it, civilization as we know it, is very much set up to keep you from being happy. Because if you're actually happy and content, and you're actually doing what you want, getting what you want, that you don't need government, you don't need militaries, you don't need any of this horseshit. So the mystery of how Philo of Alexandria came up with all of these, you know, I mean, came up with 90% of what Christianity considers to be precepts now makes sense because he was just part of the conspiracy or, you know, his work at least was stolen by the rest of his family and just injected into their, uh, you know, Caesar's Messiah into their Christ conspiracy. Um, they spend a lot of time in the documentary and the book did this too, where they are laying out that, okay, well, certainly within Roman Catholicism, there's a lot of paganism that seems to have been injected. And, and there's a lot of these ideas that have just been a part of the program for a very long time. And Christianity basically just stole all of this. And they use that as a way of trying to disprove Christianity. I mean, this is not unique to the concept that the Flavians created the gospel, wrote the gospels and created the gospels and all that. Uh, there are plenty of independent sources that talk about this. Even Protestant Christians, you know, basically lay this claim against uh, Catholicism often enough. And, you know, it's not an unfair thing to bring up um, at all. Uh, and in fact, they, they bring up and, and th there, there are things to run with with this. They bring up uh, in the documentary about how the Vatican is built on top of a temple of Mithras, which Mithras, this gets into another point that I want to get into, but you have this concept and I've written, I've written stuff about this and I know some of you read it and I've even included it in uh, Zomi one underground content. I think it was called sovereign insights that I was doing uh, for a little while. And you basically have this character throughout history, this, this mythical character that I don't just call mythologists call it this. Anyway, it's called the resurrectrix. Okay. This character, this God that is, that, that is constantly resurrected. It dies. It comes back to life. It dies. It comes back to life. Or at least this figure that dies and comes back and comes back to life, etc. Mithras is one of those characters. Clearly Jesus is one of those characters. There have been others, Horus. I mean, uh, Adonis, there have been many, the resurrectrix, even uh, Isis, the resurrectrix, or Ishtar takes a lot of different forms throughout history. It is a, 
it is it is as intertwined with humanity as any concept since basically we invented writing for ourselves it's always there and i think there are interesting things to take away from that i mean and in fact and this is something i brought up in one of my sovereign insights the concept of the resurrectrix even is even in cultures that had no apparent religion or centralized god or even pantheon of gods for example the minoans had these little snake goddesses we call them snake goddesses but again the minoans had we we have no evidence of a minoan religion we have these snake goddesses in their houses but the snake goddess you know has a knot in between her breasts and everything i mean like all of these that looks like an ankh all of these symbols that are really just it's it's a symbol of the resurrectrix now i have my own little theories around what's the actual history of say the snake goddesses that the minoans had that's a little bit of a different story but for pagans a lot of them took this concept of the resurrectrix of this dying and then, you know, coming out as a higher being, they took this as allegory, right? It was allegory that you, your lower, you, as you, uh, gain more experience, as you worked on yourself, etc., you, your lower self dies off the past self that, that was representative of the lower self that wasn't as knowledgeable or as enlightened dies off and you rise again more in touch with your higher self and that you do this all the time. You are constantly going, it's basically the most ancient self-improvement story we have, the resurrectrix. So this is something that kind of hits every human at their core because the story is just so prevalent. And I think it's a part of who we are. We are constantly, you know, uh, or I, I mean, when we're healthy, I think we are constantly trying to better ourselves. And so having a allegorical mythological notion or story for that, like the resurrectrix in whatever shape it takes, Adonis, Mithras go down the list. Um, of course, you know, we have that and it's an easy way. It's such, it's such, I don't want to call it necessarily innate because I don't think it's genetic, but it's so culturally innate that it's the easy thing to inject into a story that resonates with everybody even the Jews, right? And so that's why Jesus is a resurrectrix character. And also it gives historicity to a claim that Titus Flavius would try to make to pacify the Jews. Okay, you know, once you get into the late, latter part of the, of the first century. But then this time around, the concept of the resurrectrix is to be taken literally. And once it's no longer allegory for you improving yourself for you getting in touch with your higher self and your higher nature and so on once it becomes a literal thing that happened to a person in this case jesus christ and then represented in titus flavius when it becomes a literal interpretation then instead of empowering you the individual it empowers centralized authority which was the ultimate goal of the flavians it's a great theory this whole thing, I mean, really, it's a great theory. Where it starts to fall apart, in my opinion, is when they try to attribute actions of Titus Flavius and say that, well, there are stories retold in the, new, in the Gospels that are basically metaphor for actions that Titus Flavius said. And this falls into what's known as typology, which absolutely Torah uses, where 
in Torah, you have stories that seem to like, they're almost cyclical. Like, oh yeah, I know this event happened and this event happened. In fact, Christians use the same thing. It's what they call a type of Christ, right? Where you have all these characters like Elisha, Elijah, and so on, who are considered types of Christ. Um, now, with with studying Torah, this idea of typology, which I mean is, is a brilliant move because it's something, no, nobody really uses this anymore today, but you're supposed to read the Bible comparatively meaning that you compare every story to other stories. And I mean, Torah even instructs you to do this and arguably the new Testament as well, because it repeats some of the lines from, from the old Testament about that. Uh, and when you do that, it, it gives a, it gives you that sense of history, right? For the average person. But of course, if you're, you know, an actual, like if you're a rabbi or if you're a Jewish priest or an Israelite priest or something, when you experience these things, it's really pointing at you that this gets into Kabbalah and I'm, I just don't have the time to, to go into that right now, but using typology is a way of, shall we say, putting Torah, putting the words, the letters, the very characters as in, you know, the typographic characters, putting them in the right order because maybe they're out of order. But we're not going to talk about that. that. That's besides the point of what we're working on here. Okay. The New Testament uses typology. It creates stereotypes that play off of the Old Testament. Okay. And that's why Christ seems, wow, he's a lot like Elijah at this point, or he's a lot like Moses at this point. And they tried to use that to, to for typology to fit into the narrative of Titus. Well, Okay, Titus didn't necessarily send 20,000 pigs into the sea when he takes on the, the demon legion, right? But he did slaughter such and so many Jews and just off them instantly. And, and, and the idea that, so, and this is where I have a little bit of problem with the theory that Joseph Atwell's, or Joseph Atwell's laying out, is that when he starts to say that there were actions that Titus took that get laid out in metaphor as things that Christ did, 40 years previous, that's where things get sketchy for me. That's where the theory kind of falls apart. But I don't think the theory needs any of that, right? It really doesn't. It does a good job when it brings up typology and saying, well, you see how Christ is actually a lot like Moses. You know, Moses had to go through the Sea of Reeds, right? He crossed through the water, just like Jesus had to get baptized, you know, to, to finally become what he expected. Moses is in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. Wow, these are very similar. Like they're, they're just different enough, but it falls under typography where it's a stereotype where it's like, oh, okay. But, but I, where a Jew would read it and say, wait, this feels so familiar. This must be God. And that part makes sense. But trying to attribute actions of Titus with Jesus, uh, that, 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 that part falls apart. And you don't need to point at Titus Flavius being Jesus or being the, the resurrected Messiah, uh, you know, for that to make sense. Okay, and, and, and for, the, for this, this Christ conspiracy to, to, to have, uh, you know, actual cachet. But regardless of that, again, it's a very, very interesting theory. Um, why do I, do I think that, it's, that it happened or that this is how it actually went down? I'm very open to this, and I have been for a long time. That's why I would na name drop it, basically, any time that I would talk about Jesus, because I'm very, very open to this possibility because again, it, it dots a lot of I's, crosses a lot of T's. It really does. It, it, it suddenly history makes more sense once you put this in there, because we have no history 
uh, no real history of Jesus's existence, right? Or of any of the things that supposedly happened between, you know, depending upon when you want to say Jesus actually was born, you know, was it 4 BCE and he lived to 30, you know, however you want to put that together. We just don't have any history of this stuff ever really happening. In fact, some of the even stranger stuff, we really should have more history because it didn't just have to do with one guy, kind of like what I brought up earlier. So, but at the same time, and, and I, I got into this, like with the Essenes, right? I mentioned them earlier. I think John the Baptist was a real person. And I also think, I, I think that Josephus actually points at that John the Baptist was a real person. And I think that John the Baptist was actually meant to be the Jewish Messiah. But then, or at least he fit the Essenes bill of the Jewish Messiah. But he got off too early. And I think he had a cousin that took over. And that cousin was who gets attributed to being Jesus Christ. Um, as far as, you know, the Gospels and all this other stuff, I mean, you know, most, a lot of historians readily accept that that the Gospels and the New Testament in general, I mean, the writings of Paul, sure, but that, you know, people will suggest that actually the Pauline Christ as in the Christ and the works of Paul, is a different character than what's in the four Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, or even the Gospel of John. That they are not the same person. Just like the, the Christ in the book of Revelation. Somehow, I mean, he even looks different. He has white hair, right? He's wearing the armor, the blazing eyes and everything. He's a very different character than what you experience in the works of Paul. He's a very different character than what you experience in the Gospels. So, what we know of or what is conventionally considered to be Christ, that that person, that character, probably did not exist. But was there a real Christ? Well, I, I mean, and and I would go so far, you know, if you want to go into some conspiracies, I think that there are, we have people throughout the past couple thousand years who knew this. For example, Thomas Jefferson. He wrote what's commonly known as the Jefferson Bible, right? The life, uh, or what is it? The the life and teachings of uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, or something like that, is is the actual title for it. But it's commonly called the Jefferson Bible, and he wrote this specifically. And I've gotten into like there's weird things, what languages he used to translate from, and everything. But he's basically getting rid of all of the supernatural aspects of Jesus's life, and he's saying this is what this guy actually laid down and taught okay because a lot of what jesus taught again christianity is is different and i i, I know you're going to bristle at this but really you can point at it especially when you study philo of alexandria christianity is a different animal from the teachings of christ and the teachings of christ in fact this documentary brings it up a lot of the you know love your neighbor as thyself a lot of these other things the simple stuff a lot of that was already part of the Jewish canon. It was already part of Torah, right? Hillel the Elder. I mean, he, he came right out, you know, he and he said it. He said, the whole of Torah is love the, is basically love thy neighbor as thyself. He'd use different, uh, slightly different words, but the same exact meaning. Jesus had nothing revolutionary to say. He just kind of put it all together. And that's what Thomas Jefferson put all together. But I think he stripped everything away from the New Testament that wasn't what this actual character who essentially took over, you know, filled John the Baptist's shoes and went onward and probably got off 
himself. And, you know, and what, what those teachings were wouldn't get picked up, well, for at least quite a few centuries, if not longer. And, you know, we, we can get into the Florentine Renaissance and a lot of other stuff that probably points at, at, at some of that, a rediscovering of history that went down. But I am, my, to me, the evidence stands is that they're, they're what, the Essenes were looking for a Messiah. They had Messianic texts. We have them now. And they were really looking for a Messiah. And that Messiah did exist. They lost. Okay, the Essenes weren't right. But they did get their person. They did get their character. And that person ended up being who perhaps, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of both, where the Flavians would use you know, like they, they knew there was a character named Jesus, right? That, that fulfilled the Essene messianic prophecies that came after John the Baptist because none other than, uh, you know, Josephus himself would be aware of this, who probably wrote the gospels. Um, the documentary brings up very well how like stuff that Josephus wrote reads almost word for word verbatim of things that are in the new Testament. That's a problem, right? But anyway, maybe they knew there was a character that they could base this Christ off of and that they could... So, so again, it could be both. Because then Titus Flavius, you know, could still fill that bill. And just the idea of this Messiah coming back to life, which doesn't exist in the Essene scriptures, okay, and in the Essene prophecies. But they would meld that in with who the Essenes thought were... I mean, because again, they were gone. By the time, by that time that Titus, Titus Flavius took over, the Essenes were effectively gone. And so they lost, <laughs> they, they, they were wrong, but then they, they had their day in the sun and whatever really happened to them. Um, I mean, there's, there's some, you know, historical evidence for what may have happened to them, but for them to be so wiped out, uh, you know, that's where the, the Vic, the, you know, the victors wrote history and basically wrote the Essenes out of history as well as they could. And fortunately though, you know, Decades ago, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls and we get some, uh, we get some truth, not that their prophecies were true, but that they existed and they were a force to be reckoned with. This gets into, so, so I guess, I guess I could see where it really like both occurred, where my theory that yes, Jesus was a person, of course, he was just in a scene, uh, you know, carrying on the messianic prophecy, but then losing and then it becoming more the, and, and then you know, what we know of as the gospels and as, as, as the new Testament getting written by Josephus, uh, under orders from, uh, Vespasian Flavius and his son, Titus Flavius, who would be seen as the son of God, uh, like that, that both of those, both ideas gel, they can fit together because Joseph Atwill doesn't really touch on that at all of whether or not. Yeah. But wait, was there actually a guy? Okay. So the Flavians made it up, but was there a guy that they based it off of? I, I think that's very possible. But one of the, a nugget I'm going to leave you with on this, because we got to wrap this baby up. I've been going long. A nugget I'm going to leave you with on this is understand that what that with Judaism, even then you had multiple interpretations. You had multiple types, uh, denominations, if you will. You had multiple denominations of Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism is only one form and one interpretation of Torah. It happens to be the predominant one for seemingly the past couple thousand years, but it's only one. And that 
there may be others, and that maybe in those others there are some very interesting things, and dare I say truths, to glean. So I'm going to leave you with that. Anyway, yeah, I, I totally recommend everybody watch this documentary. Um, I think there's interesting things in it. I think that it can easily fit in with my own, you know, theories that I've already espoused. Again, that Jesus was, you know, well, that, that like John the Baptist was meant to be the Messiah. That didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. We didn't, we're not even getting into the Sabbateans. I mean, there's so many interesting things to get into with, with Jewish um, messianism. Is that, is that a word? Uh, that, that we could that we could get into. Um, but I'm, I'm very, very open to this and it doesn't contradict anything that I already believe. So, or that I, that, that fits the, my own, uh, interpretation and facts of history. So there you have that. Check it out. Caesar's Messiah. Read the book if you want. Um, it's available out there. Uh, again, you might want to read the, the Flavius signature edition. Um, I don't know if it's added anything. I'm probably going to reread that soon. Uh, because I do think this is really interesting, but let's end this baby off. Let's, we got to get you an album of the weekend. Okay. So let's get in this album of the week. And this is one, I had a lot of fun listening to this. It's a new album. I think it's like their fifth album, which I haven't listened to any of their previous stuff. And I need to resolve that, uh, in pretty short order, but the band, it's a metal band, uh, kind of more of a power metal band called Amberian Dawn, Amberian Dawn as an Amber. Uh, and it has a, a female lead vocals and she's got some great pipes. Uh, their new album is called looking for you just came out a, a, like a week ago in 2020, um, 11 tracks, pure dynamite. Uh, the production level is a little lower and, and, and so it makes some of the synth and other things that add into the metal. It, it makes it sound a little cheap but it sounds like it comes right out of the eighties. Like, like there is, there is synth in it. It's a nice background synth. It's simple, but I don't know. I, I, when I was listening to this, I mean, I was working out at the gym. In fact, I was doing leg day and it put a smile on my face from ear to ear because a lot of the songs are about love and just very wonderful things. There's a couple times where it goes dark, but overall it's, it, it, it's a very, you know, it's a very upbeat, uh, listen. And I got to tell you, it takes, something special to put a smile on my face when I'm leg pressing six to 700 pounds. Okay. <laughs> you've got, you've got to be, you got to have some kind of magic if you are making me smile during that. But I'll tell you the Sambirian Dawn album looking for you. It did that. Uh, so what else, how else, what else can you say about it? <laughs> it's, it's great. I loved it. I, I thought, it, you know, it, it's, I feel like they are the antithesis of, Power Wolf. And I love Power Wolf, but they, they're like, they're the antithesis of that. They're the opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, Power Wolf is all about the darkness and Beery and Dawn's very much about the light. And I, and I, and I like that. I mean, I like a good mixture. I, I love my darkness. You know that. Uh, but this, this was a, a nice change of pace. And, uh, and I, I really dug it. I can't believe that they're like four or five albums deep. Uh, I can't wait to go back and listen to their earlier stuff. Uh, but this album is a great showing just absolute dynamite to listen to. So check it out. Amberian Dawn looking for you from, uh, from 2020. And I, I think you're in for a, I want to say a heaven of a time. I was going to say a hell of a time. <laughs> They're not Christian. At least I don't think so. Uh, but, but you're in for a great time. You got to check it out. So there we go. We'll end off with that. You got questions. You know how to send them to me, baby. BBS at SovereignTech.com. You can ask them right into the Sovereign Tech Telegram group. If that is easier for you, just label it. Like you can do a hashtag Q and a, that way I can find it when I do a search in the group. 
because, I mean, the group is so active. It's very tough to keep track of everything. And that's a good thing. I ain't complaining for nothing. Uh, I think that's wonderful. So, and do join that Sovereign Tech Telegram group. We are having a great time in there. I love it. And, uh, well, anyway, I'll wrap up this week's Q&A, and I will see all of you whoo, on the other side. <laughs>